Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris Taylor, and I'm going to be your host today. Let me tell you, we're so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if this is your first time listening or you would just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. We've been in this message series called Making a Messiah for a while now. We've been looking at the life of Jesus while trying to decide whether we think he truly was who he said he was or not. We've seen stories of his power, we've heard his teaching, and now we're listening to his personal claims. Today we're looking at the triumphal entry, and that's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that may not seem all that special. Surely everybody rode in on donkeys everywhere, right? Well, not quite. This was a way that Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy. Let's listen in to this week's take on Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Here's our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Glad you guys are here. Starting to get close to the end of our series, Making the Messiah. Here's a tale of two kings. Not quite 1,400 years ago, a man by the name of Muhammad rode a war horse into the city of Mecca. He was surrounded by 400 mounted men. There were warriors and 10,000 foot soldiers. Everyone who converted to Islam was spared. Those who did not were either killed or they were enslaved. And that's how Muhammad became Mecca's new religious, political, and military leader. And of course, Mecca became the holiest city in the Islamic world. And today you can still see Muhammad's swords on display in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, or so they say. Now the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem was just a wee bit different. Jesus rode into Jerusalem not on a war horse, but on a donkey, a little one. There was no cavalry to protect him. There were no legions of soldiers behind him. Just a few Galilean peasants, about 12 of them. Now, many of those who did greet Jesus were waving these palm branches because some of them were quite enthusiastic about the arrival of the one that they were hoping might actually be the Messiah. But others laughed. As for those who laughed at him, Jesus had none of them killed or enslaved. In fact, a few days later, he let them kill him. And today, what is regarded as Jesus' sword is ubiquitous. It's on the wall behind me. It's on many of you as tattoos or you're wearing it as jewelry. Now, we kind of get the entrance of Muhammad into Mecca. It was brutal. It was barbaric. But man, was it an entrance. It was a game changer, a defining moment in that city in that world, and even for many people today, still. Jesus' triumphal entry, (laughs) full of weird, and infinitely more consequential. So we're getting close to the end of the Jesus story. Jesus is done with all of his preparatory stuff. He's been with these 12 guys for about three years, doing miracles, teaching them, getting them ready convincing them that he is the Messiah, even though he was not even close to the kind of Messiah they'd been expecting. Now, we figure that at this point, Jesus was probably in his early 30s, pretty young by our standards, at least humanly speaking. He would have had his home in Galilee, his base in Galilee, and 
So the walk from his home in Galilee down to Jerusalem wouldn't have been too hard for him. He was young, fit, done it many, many times, a little over 100 miles, just a few days walk, I suppose. Back then, those Jews who could would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the festivals, the big festivals, maybe even three or four times a year. So Jesus had made that trip from Galilee to Jerusalem maybe dozens of times, perhaps even a hundred times before, but never, ever, ever before had he entered Jerusalem like this. This was different. Probably every other time Jesus had entered Jerusalem, he'd done it on foot. In fact, for the festivals, it was customary for the pilgrims to enter into Jerusalem on foot, even if they'd been riding donkeys or horses or whatever on their way to Jerusalem. When they got to town, they got off and entered on foot. Jesus, not this time. Right before entering town, he actually said, get me a donkey and make it a little one. It's not that he was tired. He just wanted this to be different. And it was. Because this was kind of like his coming out, his going public, his switching to cognito. You see, up till this time, whenever someone started spreading it around that Jesus might actually be the Messiah, he actually told him to hush, right? It's kind of almost comical. He'd heal somebody or he'd cast out a demon and they'd be all excited wanting to go out and tell people and he'd say, shh, not yet, not time yet. You know Why? Because Jesus knew that once he started claiming outwardly that he was going to be the Messiah, that some of them would actually go to kill him. And Jesus wasn't ready to die yet. He had prep stuff to do. He had things to show them, things to teach them. But now everything changes. Now Jesus goes public. This is his coming out as the Messiah. Now he's ready to say out loud, I am the one you've been waiting for. Believe it or not. Prep work's done. Now I'm ready to finish. So instead of walking into town the rest of the way the rest of the pilgrims had done it during this festival time, Jesus gets a little donkey. We're going to see why in a couple of minutes. And, and he actually plots his route through the Mount of Olives. We're going to see why in a couple of minutes. And when the people get excited, start waving palm branches, saying all kinds of Messiah stuff about Jesus, and the Jewish leaders try to quell the excitement and shut them up, Jesus says, if you hush these people up, the rocks, the rocks are going to start cheering me. Huh? Because Jesus went to Jerusalem to pick a fight, a fight he intended to lose, kind of, it seems for a couple of days at least. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and it's kind of like he tells them flat out, okay guys, it's time. Crown me or kill me. Those are the only two options I'm going to give you. In fact, they're the only two options God gives you. So we're going to walk through Luke's account. This little scene of the triumphal entry is actually found in all four of the Gospels, but we're going to walk through Luke's account and see if we can really understand what's going on. 
It's about a week before the Passover feast. The Passover was one of those pilgrim festivals. So tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over that part of the world are making their way to Jerusalem for the feast to commemorate Passover. You know, Mount Moses and the Exodus and all that stuff. Jesus and his disciples are coming from Galilee to the north. They're going down to Jerusalem in the south. The road that they would likely have taken would have led them to Jericho, which is at the base a little bit south of Jerusalem. And believe it or not, it's still there at this time. It would take them up right past Bethany, which is a couple of miles east of Jerusalem, through one of the suburbs called Bethphage, and then down the slope of the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up into the temple area in Jerusalem. Looks like Jesus and his disciples got to Bethany on a, on a Saturday, where they spent a little bit of time with the family of Lazarus. He's the guy that Jesus rose from the dead. And then some people think on Monday, others say Sunday. Somewhere what we would call the 1st of April, probably around 30 AD, Jesus says, let's go. Let's get this party started. So Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28, here's what Luke says. He says, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem. He's walking ahead of his disciples. And as he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, right east of Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples ahead. He says, go into that village over there. And as you enter it, you're going to see a young donkey, a little guy sitting there that no one has ever ridden. He says, untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone actually says, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. The Lord. <laughs> Tell them God needs it. So they went and found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they're untying it, the owners asked them, what are you doing? And the disciples simply said, God needs it. And for some reason, the guy ex accepts their explanation. They take it and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Now, this is weird. Jesus had never done this before. I don't think anybody had probably ever done it this way before. But the details are important. In fact, they're huge. Every piece of this scene is being choreographed by Jesus to make a point. To force them to choose. Crown me or kill me. But I'm not going to let you ignore me. Crown me or kill me. Still tells us that. Jesus tells his disciples to get him a donkey, a, a little guy. Do you know why? Do you know why he says that? Why not a horse? Why not a war horse? If he's going to enter like a king, why not some this majestic steed? Why not even a mule like King David rode? They would have understood that piece. Well, about 500 years before Jesus, there was a prophet by the name of Zechariah. He had a little book right at the end of the Old Testament. And this is what Zechariah the prophet prophesied. He says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Zion is a, another word for Jerusalem back in that day. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, pe people of Jerusalem. You know why? Because your king is coming to you. Your king is coming to you. And they knew that was going to be the Messiah. He is righteous, he's victorious, and yet he's humble, and he's riding on a donkey. In fact, he's riding on a donkey's colt. 
Zechariah goes on. I'm not going to show that part on the screen, but this is what he goes on to say. He says, I'm going to remove the battle chariots from Israel. I'm going to remove the war horses from Jerusalem. I'm going to destroy the weapons you use in battle, and, and your king is going to bring peace to the nations, and his realm is going to stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So, do you know why Jesus told his disciples to go get him a young donkey to ride in on? Because Jesus says, that's me. That guy he was talking about, that king he was talking about, that Messiah he was talking about, that's me. He's predicting me. You keep reading in Zechariah, and five chapters later he says this, on that day, the Messiah, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. Guys, I mean, this may be kind of a mystery to us. We don't read Zechariah that often, but these Jews back then, they knew the story. They knew the predictions. They knew about the Messiah. They believed that Zechariah was talking about the Messiah when he said his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus says, let's go that way. Let's come down the Mount of Olives. You think they didn't know what Jesus was doing? So when Jesus comes riding onto a, into town on a young donkey... Even though they knew what he was doing, he probably still looked a little bit silly, didn't he? Ever seen a young donkey? It's a little guy, isn't it? You ever tried to ride one of those little midget horses at the fair? Maybe your feet kind of drag along the ground. And yet, even though he looked that way, here's what some of the people started to do. Look, verse 36. As Jesus rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. Really? That's not normal, guys. Guys riding a horse, you don't usually throw your coat down in front, right? You know what a horse can do to a coat? You know why they did that? Because back then, that's what you did when a king comes riding into town. In fact, the other gospels tell us that some of them actually started cutting these palm branches. Some of them were waving the branches. Some of them were throwing down in front of the, the donkey with Jesus riding on it. You know why they did that? Because back then, that's the kind of thing you did when the king was coming into town. And they were hoping Jesus really was the Messiah, the king, the guy that they'd been waiting for. Maybe he was finally come to rescue them, to make Israel great again. So Luke says, when they reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for the wonderful miracles that they had seen. And they started saying things like this, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest heaven. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they record this scene, they actually add a couple of other lines that we don't see here in Luke. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. You know what Hosanna means? Lord, save us. God, save us. Son of David, because son of David is one of the names they had for the Messiah. And instead of telling people to hush up, Jesus just drinks it in. In fact, he stirs it up, which seems to really tick off some of the bigwigs, right? And they're kind of like, settle them down, Jesus. Things are going to turn ugly. If you start prancing around like you're a king or something, the Romans are going to come in and they're going to kick our tails. And Jesus says, no, not this time. In fact, if these people were to shut up, the rocks themselves would start praising me. Do you think he really meant that? 
It's a weird scene. What a way for Jesus to come out, to go public as the Messiah, to eliminate the in in incognito. And I kind of think, just like today, that different people in that crowd were responding differently to Jesus. Some of them were probably just curious. They were the casually curious, and they're always around. What's the commotion over there? Well, I hear it's that Jesus guy, you know, the guy that supposed to be doing all these miracles and making all these wild claims about himself. He's over there actually riding on a donkey down the Mount of Olives. Can you believe that? Acting like he's the Messiah or something. Well, let's go look. Let's go wash. This could be cool. You've been there. You've done that. You ever done any gawking or rubbernecking? I got to do some of it uh, last Thanksgiving in Dallas. Julie and I went down to Dallas to see the greatest team on earth play, the Dallas Cowboys, right? In the greatest stadium on earth. And when we got to the stadium, we were walking towards it. We saw all these people clustering around the back of the stadium. And, of course, we wanted to go see what was going on. We wanted to do a little bit of rubberneck and a little bit of gawking. So we went over the scene, and that's where the players were getting out of their cars, going on to the stadium, getting ready for the game. It was so cool. You ever done anything like that? That's what a lot of these people were doing with Jesus. I've heard of that guy. Let's go watch. Let's go see what's going on. Some people today are still like that. And then others, I suspect, they probably really did think Jesus looked a little bit stupid. I mean, what's a grown man doing riding a baby donkey? It's a tiny little thing, isn't it? And instead of soldiers, warriors like Muhammad had around him, Jesus has got these 12 dorky-looking Galilean peasants. That's his entourage. This is our king arriving. Huh. And everybody's getting all worked up. A few days later, some of these same people who are all kind of worked up would beat a crown of thorns into his head. A week later, put a robe over his shoulders that had already been told to, torn to shreds. They put a reed into his hand like it was a scepter, and they'd laugh at him. Then they'd take him to the cross, and they'd nail him to the cross, and they'd put this little placard overhead that says, Jesus, the king of the Jews, and they'd laugh at him again. In fact, it almost makes you wonder whether Jesus intended to look a little bit dorky. He's making a king's entrance, but he was trying to make a point. He's different than any other king you've ever seen before. Others who were there watching Jesus, they kind of got scared because this riot could have created real issues for them, and then they got mad. Jesus was always pushing the edges, and this time it seemed he was crossing the line. This is Jerusalem. This is Passover. There's tens of thousands of people pouring into Jerusalem, and Jesus is stirring them up, and that's just not good. He's claiming to be their king. He's claiming to be their Messiah. Jerusalem's a powder keg. They're under Roman control. Roman soldiers are right nearby. And they didn't tolerate things like demonstrations and riots. So they asked Jesus, settle things down. Settle them down. Quell this thing. Jesus says, in fact, now it's time. You either crown me or you kill me. And then for some in the crowd, this is probably it. This is it. This is what they've been waiting for. I mean, they've been hearing about this Jesus. He could actually still a storm, they'd heard, right? He could take a whole crowd and he could feed them with a McDonald's Happy Meal. It was incredible. This guy had power. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. I heard he even raised the dead. 
Surely this is the guy who could make Israel great again, right? In fact, I thought this was kind of fun. This is Jesus' goal, make Israel great again, right? Maybe Jesus could kick out the Romans, clean out the swamp, clean up their Wall Street, bring justice back to their courts, put a chicken in every pot, clean out their hospitals. Maybe he's the one, finally, the one they'd been expecting. He had the power, they hoped, and now he's yanking off his mask. Now he's pulling off his gloves, and he's ready to pick a fight. And you know what? They're ready to go. If he's got this kind of power, let's get it done. And everybody there, everybody there except Jesus was clueless. Everybody there was either cheering or jeering a figment of their imaginations, an illusion. They had no clue. They had no clue what Jesus had come to do. They had no clue how the world was going to change forever in less than a week. Now, we have a different perspective now when we look back at this scene, don't we? Because we know what happens later. We know what happens on Thursday when Jesus is arrested. We know about the sham trials they put him through. We're actually going to talk about those in a couple of weeks. We know that on Friday they actually tied him to a post and they took this whip and they just whipped his back until it was just a bloody mess down to the bone. We know that they took him, nailed him to a cross, the Lamb of God, at about the same time, the Passover lambs were being killed in the temple. And we know what the disciples say said happened next. They claimed, they claimed that three days later, he didn't stay dead. Now let me tell you guys, if you're not a Jesus follower, you better hope they were wrong. If you are a Jesus follower, what if? What if by some miracle you were able to time travel? You'll be able to go back in time and you could actually be there at this scene. Maybe you're standing there on the Mount of Olives and you know what no one else but Jesus around you knows. And you see him coming from the Mount of Olives down that slope, riding on this donkey, making this messianic claim. What are you doing? You waving a palm branch, taking off your coat, putting it in front of his donkey? Are you cheering him on? Yay, God, go, God. I'm so glad you're finally getting it done. Is your heart going to break? Because you know what he's about to do. And you feel this shame and this gratitude, and you can't sort it out. It's a way different scene for us, isn't it? All right. Three takeaways. Three takeaways. Takeaway number one, first one's about Jesus. It's about him. About the kind of man God he is. There's a great pastor up in New York by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller says that Jesus was the only person ever who was both unbelievably humble and not at all modest. Unbelievably humble and not a stitch of modesty. How does that work? Well, look at the kind of guy Jesus was, how sweet he is, how gentle he is with women, children, poor, prostitutes, tax collectors, people of other races, anybody who was marginalized in that world, and there were a lot of them. Anybody people were stepping on, he was by their side. 
He'd come to serve them. He didn't come to be served by them. He came to serve. He was unbelievably humble, but modest? Really? Jesus would say things like this, before Abraham existed centuries ago, I already was. Huh? He said things like this, someday I'm going to come back. When I come back, I'm going to judge the whole earth. I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to judge you based on what you do with me. Huh? Basically, he says things like this, I am the power behind the whole universe. There's no modesty. He claims to be God's Messiah. He claims to be the Son of God. But humble, riding on a little tiny donkey, allowing himself to be laughed at, allowing himself to be killed, a humble God. Weird phrase, isn't it? Listen, guys, don't let the fact that Jesus is so shy so humble, so gracious, and so gentle. Don't let that fool you. He's God. And he's your pathway to God. And he demands your unconditional surrender. And he demands your allegiance. Not a brag, just fact. You cannot just pass Jesus off as a great man, great teacher. You cannot just like Jesus you certainly can't ignore him. Jesus is either the most sinister liar who has ever lived, the craziest lunatic who has ever lived, or he is exactly who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He's your Savior, and he's your Lord. Here's takeaway number two. Takeaway number two is about Jesus' mission, what he came to do. Because he came to offer us not what we want. He came to give us exactly what we need. Do you believe that? See, there's this immense chasm, immense chasm between what the people wanted from their Messiah and what the Messiah came to give them. They wanted someone to make Israel great again. That's what they hoped. They wanted their Messiah to kick out the Romans, to clean out the swamp, bring justice back to their courts, empty their hospitals, put a chicken in every pot. And Jesus didn't come to do that yet. You know why? Because they needed way bigger than that. <laughs> They're sinners. They're separated from God. They're flailing around, living a life, missing the life that God created them for. Jesus came to make that right. And we're still that way. There's a chasm between what we want from God and what he wants to give us. Come on, God. You're supposed to be powerful, good, smart. I need you to get with it, God. Some bodies I need you to heal. Some marriages I need you to fix. Some prodigals I need you to straighten out. Some bills I need you to pay off for me chasm, mismatch between what we want from God and what he thinks we need more. Do you have any idea what your sin has done to your life or to the people around you? 
Do you have any idea what it means to be separated from God, missing the life that he created you for both in this world and in the next? Do you have any idea what it would mean to have peace with God, to have a purpose for living, to have a hope that transcends any of the junk that you're going to face in this world? We think we need stuff that tends to be way shallower than what he came to give us. God will always in the end, he will always in the end exceed your expectations. Do you believe that? <laughs> they thought the cross was a failure. They had no clue. This is huge. I'm going to read this for you. I want to read it to you twice. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. <laughs> He's always going to exceed your expectation. Guys, and if you start to get this, your life is going to start to get a whole lot more contented. And if you don't get this, it won't. One more takeaway. This is takeaway number three. This one's about us, okay? Same option. Same option he was given them. It's the same option he gives us. Crown him or kill him. Or at least try. Good luck with that one, actually. He's coming down this mountain on a donkey. Some of them are exciting. Some of them are mad. Some of them are laughing. Some of them are trying to shut people up. Jesus says, if these people shut up, these rocks are going to start. They're going to start praising me. This is weird. Worship me or kill me. Worship me or kill me. And if you're going to kill me, you better hope I stay dead. So which is it? Which is it? You going to crown him or you going to kill him? Tim Keller, that preacher up in New York, he tells a story about a lady that he listened to, brilliant, when he was a kid, talking about the Lordship of Christ. And this is the illustration that she used. She said, my name is Barbara Boyd. My name is Barbara Boyd. If you tell me, come in, Barbara, but stay out, Boyd, it's not going to work. She says, I don't have a Barbara part and a Boyd part that I can separate out. You either get all of me or you get none of me. And it's kind of like that with Jesus. You can't say to Jesus, come in, Savior, but stay out, Lord. Come in, helper. Stay out, King. It's all or nothing. You give them everything or you give them nothing. Because he's not going to accept just a part of you. Make him the center of your life. Go all in, guys. And it's way worth it. You're going to discover that that's what makes life, life. Doing life with God, for God, God's way. It's the best way. Why don't you pray with me, please? Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, the courage, the humility, all of those things that just make him a, an amazing God. Give us the wisdom. Give us the courage to be people of God. Help us to honor you. What we say, what we do, what we think. We love you. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.